from both sides, there needs to be empathy for the struggle. There is an, an overreaching theme in terms of dealing with kids of color physically who have challenges or in, in just period, actually. So we live in a, in a world that is a little bit more scary for our kids. Welcome to the Tilt Parenting Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber, and today I'm talking with journalist, editor, and mother of a differently wired daughter, Therese Gray. Moving forward, I plan to bring the voices of real parents to the Tilt Parenting Podcast periodically so we can learn from and be inspired by their personal journeys. Because the more we see our experiences reflected through the lives and voices of others, the less and less we'll feel alone. I reached out to Therese after reading a powerful and very personal essay she wrote for the Huffington Post called Mother Advocate, which was about her figuring out how to navigate the path of raising a child of color who also happens to be differently wired. I know that raising a black child in the U.S., especially one who is differently wired, comes with extra challenges, concerns, and considerations. In our conversation, Teresa and I look at what those challenges are and talk about how parents can best advocate for their child and ensure they get the support they need. As always, thanks for listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. To learn more about Tilt, visit www.tiltparenting.com. Hey everyone, it's Debbie Reber here with the Tilt Parenting Podcast, and this week I'm very happy to be speaking with journalist, writer, editor, and mother, Therese Gray. Welcome to the show, Therese. Thank you for having me. Well, I've been really looking forward to having you on the show because we are going to be talking about the unique challenges facing parents raising differently wired children who also happen to be children of color. And I first reached out to you after reading a powerful essay you wrote a few years ago for the Huffington Post. It was originally entitled Mother Advocate, and it was about your personal experience as a Black woman raising a Black daughter and discovering that your daughter was differently wired and your journey of kind of reframing your expectations for what your daughter's journey would look like. Right. Could you tell us about that piece and what inspired you to write it? A couple of things. Well, when we first started noticing Missy was different or had some some challenges, I should say, was with through her pediatrician saying words like that she's saying mama and she's saying dada. And we weren't that worried. She was 18 months old. A lot of kids don't start talking till they're two. After two, it was kind of like this sort of hysteria. What, what is she not talking? Why is she not talking? It could be a sign for this or it could be a sign for that. Um, so it sort of set off some alarm bells that other kids were asking for a snack or saying that's their favorite toy or where's mama. My daughter was not. So it just set us on a different track than what I originally designed. Most parents, I'm sure, have grand dreams of Mm -hmm. what they would like their children to achieve, even, you know, a few months old, whether it be, you know, the face of gap or, or kids gap or something, you know, anything. Mm-hmm. But our path was a little different because we noticed that we needed to now do other things rather than a play date. I needed to find a speech therapist rather than going to the park. We needed to check in with her pediatrician once more to see if there are other things that we need to address. OT, uh, physical therapy, running down a list of treatment 
and therapies that we weren't prepared for and we weren't schooled in. Also, finding a diagnosis for uh, Missy was a challenge. So I wrote the article because going to the park, which I took her often, she was very energetic, even, I mean, from birth, just bouncing off the walls. Some mothers would say, engage me and, and ask her how old she was. And she wasn't able to say two or three or four. And I would always chime in and talk for her. And that would spark questions. The more I saw the mothers on a regular basis, the more they would say, oh, is she still not talking? Is, you know, how old is she? And and she was a big girl. She was always tall for her age. So it just sort of raised eyebrows. And I sort of not being prepared started filling in the blanks as best I knew how. We didn't get a diagnosis early on. We didn't get even find the proper therapy for her. And going through those challenges of being questioned without having answers ourselves was difficult. And part of me was just kind of like, why can't she just be, you know? So for me, the addition to that was we went to the park one day and a little girl said, you need to take her away because I don't play with black babies. And the girl looked to be about six or seven and I didn't like that <laughs> and insisted on say, on speaking to the adult that had brought her to the playground. And it just sort of sparked something in me because I knew my daughter, even though she couldn't necessarily communicate, she was very receptive and in terms of information. And I was her teacher. I was her model. So I needed to show how to react to certain things, even without language. So I was very careful in addressing the situation and saying things to her that were empowering, that she could understand. And so that's why I kind of, I I wrote the article just sort of to flush things out and say, you know, in addition to these challenges, we also have those challenges. And how do I let my child just be? So it's been sort of that exploration in my writing, in my essay writing, as well as in crafting a book to see how we navigate those waters. How, how old is Missy now? She actually just turned eight years old. Oh, <laughs> awesome. So she's very chatty now. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like you were also on it pretty early, you know, noticing that something was going on. I think a lot of parents of differently wired kids, it tends to show up more once they start getting into school and their behaviors start standing out more, you know, like in a kindergarten or first grade. And it sounds like you had signs early on and were able to get some support earlier on than that. Yeah, I mean, it was also a struggle in looking at her frustrations because if you can't express yourself, it's going to come out in a different way. And we, we dealt with the tantrums. And even with speech therapy, um, she had one therapist that would try and help her, you know, just like look at my mouth and look at how I'm shaping the words and trying to figure out why the words weren't coming out. And you could just see her little fingers like trying to mold her lips to to shape it Mm -hmm. and trying to emulate and like I'm trying to get this out, you know, and it just wasn't coming. So seeing her go through those challenges and those frustrations made me become even more aggressive in 
finding out what we were dealing with, which turned out to be auditory processing disorder and, mm-hmm. um, and how to properly address that, not only in the school system, but outside and helping her to develop ulterior modes of, of communication, asking people to repeat so that she can process the information. Like, I didn't get that. Can you, can you tell me that again? Mm-hmm. To, so that she knows how to also integrate on the playground, yeah. Yeah, that's so great to, I'm actually working on a, another episode with Asher. I interview my son every couple of episodes for the, <laughs> the podcast, and um, he just turned 12. And we, I, we talk a lot about that, the importance of kind of letting our kids in on what's going on with them so that they can advocate for themselves and be able to get what they need, and also feel like they you know, like they fit in, like they understand how they fit in Mm -hmm. and that there's nothing wrong with them. They just are, their brains are wired differently and they need different tools or skills sometimes. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you have a son and it's even more of a challenge for girls because I know that a lot of the assessments like ADHD, people primarily look at boys and even the research Mm -hmm. is just for boys. Mm -hmm. And so for girls, it presents differently. And so you're saying, I think she has this and they're no, 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 because this would happen and that would happen. You know, so you just have this sort of trifecta of challenges (laughs) of the processing of, you know, her sex and of her color and trying Mm -hmm. to make sure that she has everything she needs. It's, it's a, 24 seven job, as you well know. (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, I'd like to go back and talk a little bit about the piece that you wrote. You mentioned, you know, that this idea of having this expectations, and you actually wrote in your piece that you your plan had been to use the tiger mom approach of kind of willing your child to succeed. And you know, this is something I know everyone listening to this podcast can relate to this idea that we get to control our child's experiences and that if we work hard enough, we can craft Mm -hmm. this child who reflects all of our ideals and, you know, our, our, our vision for, for what we want the world to see. And, but you wrote in your piece about that added pressure. And as you just mentioned that you feel raising a black daughter and one of the quotes that you wrote, society can and does often insinuate children of color are not worthy, not exceptional. I became sensitive to the racial undertone that gnawed at the investment I was making in my child. So can you kind of say more about the added pressure that you feel raising a daughter who is black? Well, an example of that is fast forward to present day. There are certain cognitive tests that all school districts do. Um, One in particular was found to be uh, racially biased. It's called the bell curve assessment. Mm -hmm. And her team, her school team, as you well know, they have a team of, of therapists that, that work with her. They wanted to give her the test. And I protested because I said this test has been proven, in fact, 20 years ago to be racially biased. So why would I want my daughter to take this test? And why don't you know the history of this test? Why is this still in the school system? So in looking at anything that might trigger her academic performance or her being perceived as being cognitively inferior, I sort of clap back at that and say, we need another option because I understand that certain educational tools are not going to be the best for her. 
And that was just sort of one of the glaring examples of things that still to this day, I mean, that was, you know, when I was in school, that was an issue. And we're still dealing with it in 2016. So anything that might label her or track her educational progress to be on a, on a, a tier that maybe doesn't challenge her enough, I want to revisit other tracks. I want to always be advocating for her to do her best. And I want the team that's assigned to her to be able to identify the best track and best testing and best options for her growth. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I meant in terms of a tiger mom. I want her to ace the test. I want her, you know, we bought a piano for her to learn. I mean, just whatever we can do to discipline her and invite that thirst for education, that thirst for knowledge and, and, and exceptionalism, expecting that for herself, regardless of what society may say about her or what she may see in the media or even what tests may say, to be an overcomer and to have expectations for herself that go beyond those that may be limiting from in other eyes. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious, you know, when you brought up with the school about the bell curve assessment or when you are advocating in that way, are you finding that the school system has been receptive and understanding and supportive? It, I mean, it sounds like a lot of well, we're all advocates and research. I th- we have to all have a PhD in research and right. to raise kids <laughs> like this. But um, what has the response been when you've pointed out these issues with standardized uh, standardized testaments and other educational assessments? It, it's kind of like you have to wake people up, yeah. understanding that everybody is not seeing the world through my prism. And there are certain things that fall through the cracks and people are just not, it's just not even on their radar. And for me to say, you need to put it on your radar, it's just sort of me helping them to understand this is important. Every challenge like this has not been an easy one, but my persistence pays off, I've found, Mm -hmm. and I have to do what it takes. I mean, if the principal is non-responsive, then I go to the head of the special education department under the superintendent. And I write emails and I make phone calls and say, we are not moving forward until this is resolved. It's not always a prompt response like, oh, we get it. You know, we have other options because I'm finding that even for, well, for kids, period, who may not have any challenges, the educational systems are old (laughs) and they're Mm -hmm. constantly being updated in parts, you know, I mean, not, they have the core curriculum now and, you know, it was no child left behind before. So there's all these different elements that they're trying to keep up with without revisiting what's stuck for 30, 40, 50 years. So it's not even on their radar and they may not be able to say, okay, I can stop doing this for the state to get this in line so I can address this issue. It's very, very complex because I know they have rules and regulations that are ever changing. Um, So me to say, okay, hey, for my little one, I need this to change too. And they've had sweeping changes elsewhere. I get it. Doesn't mean that I'm going to stop knocking on their doors or ringing their Mm -hmm. phones. And I don't think any parent should be persuaded to, you know, take a day off from advocating. 
We just celebrated our two-year anniversary of Gotcha Day when we adopted our sweet Haskell, my cat who acts like a dog, plays fetch, and who I'm pretty sure has sensory processing differences. Are you getting a new pet soon? That means you'll need to think about getting the necessities like food, toys, a bed. Something you may not be thinking about, though, is pet insurance. That's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. There's so much more to maintaining a healthy gut microbiome than eating a balanced and healthy diet, travel, certain medications, and of course, something many of us have plenty of in our daily life, stress, are just some of the other factors that can totally throw off our systems. Enter Ritual. They created Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Their supplement includes two of the world's most clinically studied probiotic strains to support the relief of mild and occasional bloating, gas, and diarrhea. I like Symbiotic Plus because it delivers all this goodness in one single nested minty delayed released capsule designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract. And because the capsules don't require refrigeration, I just keep them on my desk so that I get that helpful visual cue every morning. Plus, they're easy to bring with me when I travel. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Just shifting gears a little bit. Mm-hmm. I've spent a lot of time you know, raising a child, my son has ADHD and Asperger's or high functioning autism. And when he was younger, as I said, he just turned 12. And I would say a lot of his quote unquote, disruptive behaviors are, I wouldn't say they're behind us, but they have significantly decreased. But when he was younger, you know, six or seven, eight, when he got frustrated or upset, he his responses could be very intense, you know, yelling loud, slamming things, throwing things, kicking things. And I worried a lot about what that kind of reaction would look like when he gets older. I mean, I still do. But that people don't understand the way he's differently wired could treat him like he was just this out of control, violent person. Mm -hmm. And, and I've read plenty of articles about kids like Asher being handcuffed or pinned down in schools when they are having a meltdown, which is obviously not the right approach to handle a child with special needs having a meltdown. So after the police shootings of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling, right after that happened, I watched this 
really powerful Facebook Live video made by Adrienne Neves. She's a Black artist and social activist. She's also raising three differently wired kids, boys. And she talked about the exact same concerns that I have and continue to have about Asher, but with that extra consideration of their being Black boys and what that means in terms of how they're perceived and treated in society. And I had kind of an oh wow moment watching that video because I realized how, I mean, I think we all get kind of caught up in our own struggles and seeing, you know, I'm so focused on being an advocate for Asher and what he needs. And as we said, that can be a full-time job. And I realized that there are just thousands and thousands of parents raising differently wired kiddos who have this added challenge of their children being treated and perceived differently and often negatively just because they're Black. And in your piece, it really struck me. You said the fact that you and other mothers raising atypical children of color continue to fight alongside mothers who don't look like you and don't fully understand your other battle. So I would love if you had thoughts to share about what, because I know a lot of our listeners are white moms raising their differently wired kids. What do you wish that we understood about the experience that black mothers have raising atypical kids or ideas that you have or thoughts about how we can be better allies and supporters? You know, that's a, that's a, it's a good question. Um, because as I mentioned, you know, we have different prisms through which we see the world. And my child actually in having a meltdown in preschool was held down for an inability to communicate and throwing her shoe. Mm-hmm. So I've been there to witness and to advocate for her when that did happen. I mean, just if you can only imagine, you know, a huge adult and your four-year-old being restrained. It was unnerving. It was upsetting, not just for me, but for my baby. So in sharing that story, you, you mentioned, you know, just this sort of empathy and surprise I don't know if there is necessarily understanding that can come from that. And the best thing I could say is from both sides, there needs to be empathy for the struggle. There is an an overreaching theme in terms of dealing with kids of color physically who have challenges or in, in just period, actually. So we live in a, in a world that is, a little bit more scary for our kids. And Mm -hmm. it's comforting when people say, I may not understand, but I'm here. It's also comforting to see something and say something. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, you know, if you see a child and say, hey, I know this kid, I know they have ADHD, don't treat them like that. Mm-hmm. to speak up because a lot of people, I think they say, well, that's not my kid and I don't want to intervene. It is power in numbers. And if you have, unfortunately in this world, we are all assessed a certain value. And I don't want to say certain people are devalued, but other voices may may ring a little bit more, may get the ear of someone like a police officer over the voice of a young black male. And to speak up and say, hey, you know, he lives down the street from me. I know him. He's a good kid. What are you doing? That's that's always a powerful thing to do because it does take a village. And I think that yeah. we're so isolated and we're so busy in our own worlds, virtual and real, 
<laughs> that we do get caught up in and we do empathize with images on television. But then when we go out in the street, it's a different story because we're also weary and we're also scared and we're also disarmed in, in many ways in terms of our advocate voice. Mm-hmm. So just to understand that there's power in speaking up, you know, it doesn't have to be a yelling type of thing, but just, hey, what's the trouble? You know, hey, are you okay? Kind of, you know, to intercede and not just in, in scary type of situations because you always have to know what's best for your own situation. But on the school grounds is or playground, that's where it starts. If you see bullying even for kids who are wired differently and look different to step in where they may be scared and feeling alone. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that speaking up pieces is huge and very important that we all do that. It does take a village. It, you know, as you were talking, it actually just made me think about my own childhood and the kids who I went to school with who were the quote unquote problem kids Mm-hmm. And, you know, before there were really diagnoses for a lot of these things, and the the kids I'm thinking in about in particular, were just, we all just kind of wrote them off. And of course, now raising a child who moves through the world differently and his behavior, I recognize so much of it from these problem kids, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's very humbling to kind of realize if we're not experiencing it, we don't really know what the other experience is like. And it's also so important for parents raising kids who are not differently wired for them to gain an understanding of the experience of parents raising differently wired kids too. Because there is that lack of understanding and not really knowing what's going on is where I think a lot of the problems begin. Anyway, so I don't know, sorry, (laughs) I just went back about 40 years. (laughs) Just interesting to think about how we can really just get so involved in our own, you know, you mentioned the word isolation. And I think so many of us raising kids who are different feel isolated that other people don't really understand our experience. And I think we all need to have more of a stake in understanding other people's experiences, no matter how they're wired or what color they are. Yeah, I think that, as you mentioned, when I grew I grew up in a, in a very sheltered suburban area of Cleveland and, you know, life was just different back then. I mean, we had block parties and, you know, my family would ride up the street to 31 Flavors and get ice cream and, you know, nobody thought anything of it. And most of my neighbors were Jewish and, you know, I learned the dreidel song in third grade. And so it's just (laughs) kind of like, I didn't really think of anything other than how to have fun. And I see that with my child but I also see her eyes light up when she sees Serena Williams or Simone Manuel win an Olympic gold medal. And I see that mm-hmm. influence and in how she's, you know, I, I kind of believe that she has a little bit of ADHD and, you know, attention, but she's like glued when she sees that. And it's such a powerful thing that, you know, I can relate to in my own experience back then. That's the connection that I see and want to cherish and nurture in her mm-hmm. and not necessarily, I mean, her, her best friend in second grade is, you know, has porcelain skin and blue eyes, but you know, she, she's like, I love her. She's my sister. 
So Mm -hmm. she doesn't see anything. And I want her to keep that at the same time, be aware of who she is and always proud of that. Mm -hmm. Being proud Mm -hmm. of, I know for Asher, you want him to be proud of every part of who he is and not Mm -hmm. be ashamed of anything as everything is a gift and has a purpose. And there's a lesson in everything. I know that my expectations for my daughter have changed, but I'm not writing this story. It's sort of, you know, by God's grace that we go (laughs) forward. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so I'm just sort of facilitating what's going to happen, whether I like it or not. And I admire her willingness to embrace every part of herself. Mm. And she's got this infectious joy that even, you know, we would go to certain events where there were other special needs kids and she would be the only kid of color there. But the mothers would come up to me and say, he didn't talk before he met her. She got him out of her his shell or her shell or can she come by because she has such a special touch with certain kids and, and she's learned to appreciate and understand the gifts and challenges of all of her classmates. And so I think that that's part of her exceptionalism. And Mm -hmm. even that tiger mom in me is recognizing that she's not going to be a concert pianist, maybe, but look what else she could do. She can do what some teachers can't do or parents who are loving and supportive haven't been able to do. So, you know, you just recognize and celebrate those gifts. That's beautiful. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside.
When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask-Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. Yeah, I, you know, I think that these kids, well, I believe that they come into the world to do serious work, like they have things to do and changes to make because of who they are. And I recognize too, in Asher, how he knows so much about himself, like things I probably figured out when I was in my early 30s or something, like he just really gets and appreciates who he is. Mm -hmm. And that I do believe, you know, that kind of presence and, and confidence and just kind of self awareness is really powerful. And yeah, I think these kids, I mean, Asher, the way you describe Missy sounds similar. And Asher is like, people always say he's so happy, he's just <laughs> joyful. He's he loves everyone unless they he, he loves everyone until they've given him reason not to, okay. which is really just by being you know, if someone's really mean or bullies him, you know, then they're off the friends list. But, but otherwise, he's just open and he really sees people. And I think that is one of the gifts of these kids. And they are so self aware. And maybe it's because we have to do extra work to help them. But it's really interesting how they can kind of take that on own it, and then share it with the rest of the world. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Well, I want to be aware of the time, but I did have two more questions I wanted to to check in with you on. Okay. You mentioned earlier that you were having trouble getting your daughter a diagnosis. And I don't know if that relates to my question. You, you tell me, but I have read a lot of research that shows that black children are diagnosed with autism an average of two years later than white children. Mm-hmm. And that black children with ADHD are often medicated differently than white children would be, and maybe even with meds that wouldn't be appropriate for a diagnosis, or at least at a much higher rate than white kids would be. And I also think, as you mentioned, with girls in general, being diagnosed is really tricky. And something we've talked about on the podcast before is how autism in girls presents really differently and ADHD presents really differently. Do you have any thoughts as to the unique challenges for parents raising black children when it comes to getting a timely diagnosis, like any thoughts on that or advice maybe for parents who are listening and who are getting the runaround? Um, In terms of advice, I just say be persistent. I I mean, we went from, we were told she had aphrasia, which is typically for stroke victims, and then apraxia. And then, you know, we did the autism test uh, and the doctor the developmental pediatrician said, why are you here? She does not, she's not on the spectrum. I mean, so we, we spent a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of years to, to find an answer. 
And it's, it's hard work and it's frustrating work. But, you know, for your child's sake, I would say just don't give up. Seek out the voices that make sense. And if you suspect something, even if they're telling you, oh, I don't think this is right. I don't think that that is, you know, appropriate. Find someone else. Find the voices that, that, again, make sense. I mean, if you think your child has autism at two, you know, if, and I know that a singer by the name of Toni Braxton, she has a son with autism, and she's, in an interview, she's talking about him. She mentioned that she was kind of brushed off, I think, or initially, and she said that her mother instinct knew that something was, was different, something was off, and she needed to continue the fight to find out what was going on with her child. And she did. So I'm not sure about the particulars of her journey, but in terms of, you know, being an African-American, she just insisted on finding the right person to do thorough examination and not taking no or wait for an answer, because I know I didn't. And following suit and hearing voices like hers to say, keep moving forward, regardless of what the statistics say. And listen to your child, you know? I mean, if they're crying out for help in different ways, answer that call mm-hmm. and recognize, you know, the way in which they're trying to get through and those who also want to help foster a, a better way to serve them. Yeah, that's great. And that's such a good reminder, too, that all behavior is communication, right? Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's something that I know has made a huge difference in my relationship with Asher is really paying attention and trying to become what I call fluent in his language, right. you know, just how he needs to communicate certain things and let his needs known to me. Yeah, that's a great answer. Thank you. And that's for all parents, I think. I mean, like you said, you would agree totally with just pushing for the right, I don't know, formula, is it or diagnosis or whatever. Um yeah, I mean, it's uh, our pediatrician, too, when Asher was younger, you know, he Asher would have a good day, he'd go in for his annual checkup, and he would be chatty and, you know, this happy kid. And I'd be like, Oh, my God, he's terrorizing us at home. Like, he is really intense and all these things. And he's like, oh, I don't really see anything out of the ordinary. And he kind of brushed us off. And as we know, that turned out to not be the case. But I think you're right. We know as parents, if we're tuned in and we're willing to to pay attention, because I know there are also a lot of parents who who are consciously choosing not to pay attention because the thought of what, what they might uncover is uncomfortable or scary or feels hard. That's true. But if we, yeah, I, our, our children do deserve us to show up for them and and try to learn their language and get them the support they need. Yeah, and I have to admit that it doesn't come easy for all parents to be an advocate. I'm wired like that. I mean, I changed OBGYNs at 30 weeks because I was uncomfortable with them. They wanted to, they, they found some complications and wanted to deliver her early, like super early and put her on steroids and do all this stuff. And I just said, absolutely not. And paid out of pocket for a doctor that found another way to deal with my issues and she could be full term. And I even had this debate with my husband who was just like, well, they're the doctor. And if they say she needs to be, you know, delivered early and goes to the NICU, then that's fine. And we should trust them. And I just was like, no, I just, 
absolutely not. Everything in my body said no. And we had to figure out, we were in living in Los Angeles at the time, and we went to Cedar sinai and found the best of the best and said, okay, they're in charge of my child, not you. you know. Mm-hmm. And she was a full-term baby. And had I not done that, you know, with the other issues that she's dealing with, I'm like, what else could it, we have dealt with? You know, what else could have come out if, if I hadn't been an advocate before she got here? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just was wired like that to always put my foot down when it came to her, even before we formally met. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that was your test run, a little it uh, practice been. run. <laughs> it could have been because, you know, mother's jaws usually drop and they say, you switched at 30 weeks? I said, yeah, because <laughs> there was just no way that I was going to do this if there was another option. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, in our email back and forth, setting up this interview, you mentioned that you were working on a book about your experiences. And I would love to if you just want to share with us a little bit about that project. Sure. Well, it's uh, sort of a memoir, a look back up to um, the age of diagnosis, which was like right before kindergarten, five years old. So what it's, it's doing is it's chronicling our journey from you know, switching doctors at 30 weeks up until we finally got the answer to move forward. And the journey of our experiences of moving across the country, of dealing with kids in the, in the playground who saw that she was Black and, and weren't accepting of that, and who saw that she was unable to communicate like other kids and were not accepting of that. So it's just sort of looking at her struggles and mine as a mother because it's crushing and it's an outlet to share stories and to talk through this these journeys because it can help someone else. And so that's pretty much the idea of the book of being proud of who she is and through her example, becoming proud of who I am as a mother. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, I look forward to reading that book when it comes out. And, you know, I'm familiar with the the market for these types of books, and there's definitely a gap and this book is needed. So, and I think it's that also that time period that you're going to write about is so important because it's the time when we, I think as parents feel the most lost because we don't know what's going on and we don't know how to find the answers or what the path's going to look like. And it can be so overwhelming and isolating. So I'm sure the book is going to be really helpful to lots of people. So please keep us posted on your progress with that. I certainly will. I certainly will. I'll let you know when a, when a publisher bites. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. That sounds great. Well, listen, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and having this conversation. I think that's an important conversation. I hope to have more of them. I really want to bring more voices of um, just parents on the show and hear about their experiences. I think it's very insightful and comforting for the rest of us to hear. So, and lots to think about. So thank you so much. Thank you, Debbie. I appreciate the time. Thank you so much for tuning into the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For a link to Teresa's Huffington Post essay, Mother Advocate, and more information from our conversation, visit the show notes page for this episode at tiltparenting.com session 31. I wanted to take a minute to thank those of you who filled out the podcast suggestion form and shared with us what you want to hear about for future episodes. I'm excited that we're planning two very important episodes based on your feedback one that is all about girls on the autism spectrum, 
and another featuring a powerful conversation with Asher where we talk about diagnoses and labels from his experience. To share your idea with us, visit tiltparenting.com slash podcast and click on the suggestion form link. And thank you for sharing the podcast with your communities and for all the love we're getting on Facebook. And if you're not already signed up for our newsletter, we invite you to join our online community at tiltparenting.com. I send out periodic updates with links to new podcast episodes, articles, and resources just for you. So if you want to be in the loop, sign up there. And thanks again for listening. For more information on Tilt Parenting, visit www.tiltparenting.com. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us.